It's great to be here with you today. My name is Stephen. I'm the pastor here at New Covenant, and we do love Jesus and love people. Thank you for being with us today. Hi, Mender family. How are you doing, guys? We love you. Good to see you, kids. You look great in your masks. If you are joining us online, then welcome, and we are blessed that you're here with us, and we are blessed to also be in person. Uh, let's take just a moment. We're going to pray a few things. One of the things we're going to pray just now is for our brothers and sisters in Guatemala, in India, in Zambia, and Zimbabwe, where we're working. Uh, all around the world, there are uh, the effects of COVID-19 and economic effects and all the same stuff all around the world. And our, in particular, we received a message from our Guatemalan brothers and sisters asking, please pray that we can actually meet in person again. So even with restrictions like masks and things, uh, just to be able to be wise, but just to be together. It's been a long time. And so let's, let's pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. You ready? Father, we come before you and we thank you, Lord, that we are not the holders of your truth alone. But Lord, we are part of your greater body. Lord, because you have one church in the world, one baptism, one Holy Spirit, one gospel. And so Lord, we bow the knee to you and we ask you, Father, for our brothers and sisters around the world that we know and are working closely with, but Lord, all those churches that are preaching your gospel. Father, let us ring true in your world. Lord, let us proclaim loudly. Father, let us be together where we can demonstrate what real love looks like. Father, help us to be like Jesus everywhere we are. Father, and whether we're facing persecution from regimes in Pakistan, or Lord, whether we are just waiting to try to meet together in Guatemala, Lord, all around your world, we pray blessing on your church in Jesus' name. And we ask you, Lord, for those brothers and sisters that are working with us, God, that you would bless them, that this wouldn't be a time of decrease, but instead they would see your kingdom increase as they are proclaiming your truth and your gospel, Lord, and seeing souls saved. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's turn in your Bible, please, if you will, to Jonah chapter 1. If you're on your app, everybody has apps. Nobody actually turns in Bibles anymore. If you have your app, just type in Jonah 1, and you'll get there. It's amazing. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. We are in a series right now in Jonah. I love the book of Jonah. It's only four chapters long. It's a fantastic book for us. Jonah is what we call a minor prophet, uh, just meaning that his book is short, is what, why the minor is there. All the prophets are important, but minor just means it's a short book. And Jonah is, has received a call to go out to a place called Nineveh, uh, which is in modern-day Mosul, Iraq. That's where Nineveh is, modern day. And so this would be in the middle, at this time period, of the Assyrian Empire, far away. And he's been called to go and deliver a message. And the message he's been called to tell them is that there's going to be judgment from God against this place. Now, that's interesting because they are not the Israelite people. These are Assyrian people who don't know God, and yet the Lord is sending one of his prophets to go there to speak to them and to bring them into righteousness. And Jonah epically fails. Epically fails over four chapters. In fact, I, my uh, third son, my third child, my boy Jonah, is named Jonah uh, after this story. And somebody asked me once, how could you name your boy after a failure? And I said, well, the, the book of Jonah, the theological import, what we learn from it about God and his people and what he's doing in the world is so rich and so important. And to see God's heart of evangelism and care for even people outside of Israel is so important that I wanted my boy Jonah to carry that name forward. And so even though the guy Jonah is a failure, 
as we are going to see over the course of all these sermons. Uh, God is not. And praise the Lord for that. As we come to this word this morning, we're going to be reading in Jonah 1. And I, w- I just want to ask you a question. Um, I started this day kind of weird. Maybe you've had this happen to you. I had weird dreams last night. You ever woken up after a night of weird dreams? Um, our youngest daughter is a little bit under the weather right now with snotty nose and stuff, and so she slept really poorly, not COVID, praise the Lord, just to be clear. But she slept really poorly, so we were up a lot last night, so I don't know if it was just being up a lot, or I took like a multivitamin right before I went to bed, maybe it just did something weird to me, I have no idea. But I had the weirdest dreams, and I woke up kind of out of sorts. Have you ever had that happen? Where you wake up, um, I, I don't know, it's, it's different. And so I woke up this morning, and usually, especially on Sunday mornings, I wake up like thinking about what the meeting's going to be like and what God's going to do and what we're coming to in the Word. And this morning I woke up pondering on this weird dream I had of high school 20 years ago, and it's just odd, right? Lord, help us. Have you ever had one of those experiences? How does that set you up for the day? Well-rested, excited, good? Or off all day? Have you ever found yourself pondering something like that that really maybe has a meaning or doesn't have a meaning long into the next several days where you're thinking about it and wondering about it and then you suddenly come to this realization, does this even matter? What am I doing? And suddenly you kind of snap back to reality of what's happening. I want you to keep that in mind with Jonah as we read what happens to him. Jonah, as I said, decides to run away from his call to go to Nineveh. Instead, he tries to go to a place called Tarshish, and so he boards a ship and sails to Tarshish on the other side of the known world. Um, So in the middle of the sea, probably the Mediterranean Sea, he is with sailors, and the Lord is going to send a tempest against the boat. So that's where we're picking up the story, if you'll read with me. Jonah 1, starting at verse 4. But the Lord... But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. Verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous, temptuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more temptuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. 
So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. The men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the, fish, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Praise the Lord for his word. What a great story. What a sad story. As you read this story, I hope it makes you angry. It should make you angry. You know, I heard somebody talking one time about Jonah and about what a great man of faith he was, that he could go into the belly of the ship, into the inner part of the ship, and lay down and sleep even in this great storm. That's not true. You know, running away from God and away from his purposes, running away from God's kingdom plan is exhausting. It's exhausting to fight against God and what he's doing in the world, to fight against his reign and his rule. And so Jonah is not a man of faith who is just sleeping in the inner part of the ship because he has such trust in God. Jonah is a person who has resigned his commission, resigned his mission, resigned his identity, resigned his life, and he's sleeping in the belly of the ship because he just figures that maybe God will kill him. And we're going to see that later on, that he even asked God that he would die. Jonah is a failure, and sad as it happens. He's not a man of faith. He's running away, and he's exhausted at the endeavor, endeavor of trying to run away from God. As I read this story, I'm shocked by a few things. Here's one of the things that really shocks me. The, the sailors, it's told us already that they are crying out to their gods. Notice, each one is offering sacrifices and crying out to his own god. Are these good Israelite people? No. So Jonah has found a ship of people who are from foreign land, all of them probably for, representing foreign gods or uh, a pantheon of gods. And he is, he is going on the ship with them, and they are not crying out to the Lord, but by the end of the story they will, which is fascinating. And so the captain comes to Jonah and says, What are you doing, you sleeper? Pray to your God that maybe he'll save us. And it's not working. So what do they do? They cast lots. And the way that happened was, generally speaking, you would have uh, little reeds or something that you would put in your hand, and you draw the short stick. And whoever drew the short stick, they would believe the Lord has said, okay, this, something's going on with this guy. So Jonah, of course, draws the short stick, doesn't he? And they ask him these questions. They ask him, who are you? What's your occupation? Where are you from? What is this land that you come from? They ask him all these great questions about his people, his land, his country, and his occupation. And then he tells them, and they are exceedingly afraid because he's running from the God who created the sea and the dry land. What's fascinating in the story is, through the tempest that comes, the sailors are coming to fear God. They're coming to understand who he is. They're coming to know who God is. And though just a moment ago they were praying to their own gods, hoping for some kind of salvation, in one instant in talking to Jonah about his occupation, his land, and his people, they are basically believing in the Lord God. That's a fast shift, isn't it? It's a fast shift. Jonah is asleep on the job, going the wrong direction, and yet by just opening his mouth about what he does, God is already saving some people who are far away from him. That's fascinating. I love the book of Jonah, and I love seeing what God does here. And I'm frustrated with Jonah, not only because he is trying to run away from God, 
But even in seeing how the Lord is blessing just by opening his mouth and talking, just by starting to say something about the kingdom of God, the Lord is already bringing fruit to that. And even in seeing that happen, it doesn't change Jonah's mind. What should Jonah do? How could the story be different? Think about it with me just for a moment. If Jonah were really such a great prophet and not the failure that he is depicted to be, what could have gone differently? What if Jonah had repented right there? What if the man of God who told the people about the character of God who created the sea and the dry land, who's explaining to them about that he's a people of the Hebrews and how God has saved them, what if he said, God sent me to Nineveh and I boarded this ship with you in rebellion to go to Tarshish? I'm sorry. Lord, forgive me. You men, forgive me. Will you turn the ship around with me right now and go to Nineveh? You think they would do it? I think they would. I'm saying that because it took hardly opening his mouth for them to be convinced that this God is the true God. And Jonah, instead of that, instead of any repentance, notice there's no repentance. He says, I'm a man who fears God, the God who made the sea and the dry land. But he doesn't fear God. He has no repentance. He has no remorse. And he tells the, the sailors that in order for this tempest to stop against them, that they need to pick him up and throw him into the ocean. He doesn't even have enough honor to jump off the boat. And who told these sailors that in throwing this guy overboard, they would actually be sinning against the God who created the land and the sea? Because they pray to the Lord himself. And when they pray, look here with me at verse, at verse 14. Therefore they call out to the Lord. Now in your Bible, you can see that L-O-R-D is all capitalized, right? Whenever L-O-R-D is all capitalized, that, that's a little code that in the Hebrew, that the, the name of God that he had given them, he said to Abraham and to Isaac and everyone, I am that I am. I'm the great I am. And that name, which in Hebrew is Yahweh, that name of the great I am, from whom all being comes, the one, I'm him. That's his name. Now, what's important about that name is that this is not just a name like, oh, Lord, or, hey, governor, like you're walking around in England, and they're like, oh, governor, all the time to you. It's not just a title. This is the name that the Lord had revealed to his people when he saved them from slavery in Egypt. This is the name that, the God, that God who created the heavens and the earth told to Abraham when he made a promise to him that he would call a people out of him. This is the same name that's revealed to Noah. It's the same name that comes to David. It's the same name that all the patriarchs hold up because it's him. It's his name. And these pagan sailors suddenly somehow know him enough to call on that covenantal name, that name by which he has saved his people. And they call him by name and say, not just any God or all our gods we were praying to before, but you, the living God, the great I am, please don't hold the guilt of the sin we're about to do against us. Where did they learn that that was sinful to take somebody's life when it gets bad? I was watching a show with my, uh, with my children the other day, a Disney show. Man, um, I'm not against Disney, but Disney's got its own worldview. So I'm watching the Disney show. And in this Disney show, the characters are uh, confronting one of their friends who lies a lot. He just lies all the time. He lies about everything. 
And they say, not we can't trust your word, but they design this elaborate trap to help him understand that he shouldn't lie. And, and they rig up this lie detector test with this arm that slaps him every time he lies. And so pretty soon, he's just getting slapped all day, and he realizes, I got to tell the truth. But then he tells the truth so bluntly, like he's walking through a store, and he sees a baby in a, in a baby carriage, and he goes, that's the ugliest baby I've ever seen. He just starts blunting, you know, bluntly saying things all the time. And so the friends have to convince him that it's okay to lie sometimes if you're going to hurt somebody's feelings. That's when it's okay to lie. But generally on big things, you should tell the truth. And so this whole episode is about when is it okay to lie? And so I stopped the episode and I looked at my children and I said, is it okay to lie? No, Daddy, it's not okay to lie. I said, well, what about Jerry on the, on the show? His name, the character's name is Jerry. I said, they told Jerry that he should be lying to not hurt people's feelings. If you're going to hurt somebody's feelings, is it okay to lie then? And they just looked at me. They're not sure anymore because the show just taught them that's what you're supposed to do. Where did these sailors understand that if you know this Jonah guy is guilty, and he even said, throw me in the sea, that will stop it. That's what's going to save your lives. Where did they know that by throwing this guy in the sea, they would still be guilty of murder before the God who had created the world in the sea and the God whose standard is high above any of ours? Where did they know that? I'm telling you, God went before Jonah. God had already affected their hearts. And they prayed this prayer. Listen to this prayer they pray in verse 14. They, Therefore they call out to the Lord the name of God by which he had called his people into his existence. The name of God by which he had signed the decree. This is the legal name of God. By that name they cry out and they say, Lord, by your name, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us his innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And they throw Jonah, who is so cowardly, he won't even jump off the boat himself. And immediately, the storm stops. And when that stops, what does it say? The men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered sacrifice to God, and they made vows. For a man who would not sacrifice his life, who would not fulfill his vows, and who did not fear God. How incredible. These people are better Christians, if you will, than the prophet. How sad. They make vows. Have you ever been in a bad situation? Whatever happens, tire blows out on the highway, whatever, and you find yourself promising things to God? We do it all the time, don't we? Something happens. Lord, it doesn't even have to be an emergency. Lord, if this lawnmower starts, I promise that I'll, and you know, it's whatever situation. And it happens all the time. What do you think they were promising to their false gods before they met the God? They were probably vowing all kinds of things. But now in fear of the Lord, they're offering a sacrifice and making vows. And it's different, isn't it? Because they've encountered and met the one true God through the failure of a prophet. How incredible. I wish that Jonah had repented. Are we asleep on the boat, asleep on the job, going the wrong direction? Do we fear the Lord enough that unlike Jonah, we will actually obey him? Because Jonah claims to fear God, but the only people who really seem to obey God are the sailors. 
In fact, when Jonah tells them, just throw me off the boat and then everything will stop. They try so hard to save his life that they row hard again for the shore, they themselves, to save the prophet who won't even jump off the boat for them. It's incredible. You know, fear is not always a bad thing. Um, I like Joy FM. I think it's great. And I listen to Joy FM a lot. And I've noticed that a lot of the songs now are about being, overcoming fear and not being afraid. A lot of the songs. And fear I'm breaking up with you, or fear you don't rule me, or fear you're not going to have any say in my life, and we're walking God's victory. And I'm telling you right now that the world is dying for lack of fear. They're dying for lack of fear knowing the one true God and fearing him, that he indeed is the Lord. We are so enamored with trying to rid ourselves of fear in our life emotionally that we have forgotten to demonstrate to the world what it looks like to actually fear God and obey him. The Bible's message is not about just getting rid of fear. And you know what? In the victory of God, he does help us rid fear. In the victory of God, he does help us overcome. In the victory of God in the gospel, he takes away all that curse and all those things. Yes and amen. But the moment we were first saved, the first thing we all felt, everybody, was not just this enamored joy with God and love. The first thing we felt was terror at Jesus Christ. Because all of us realized that we had fallen short of his glory. All of us realized that we could not measure up. All of us realized that he is holy and we are not holy. And sin is real. As much as the world wants to deny it, everywhere we deny it, that sin is real. And yet the Bible comes back time and time again that we should fear the holy God and come before him with fear and trembling first and repentance, which is what's missing from Jonah. And then out of that, then, we receive all the benefits of knowing his forgiveness, his love, his grace, and fear being cast aside. When the Bible says that perfect love casts out all fear, it's not talking about just walking through life and never being afraid. It's talking about that perfect love of God and Jesus Christ through the gospel has cast aside the fear that we have of coming before him and experiencing his wrath. That the judgment of God has been appeased. Because we have a king who's much better, a prophet who's much better than Jonah. The Lord Jesus came, and he himself, God himself, did not hesitate to jump out of the boat. But the Lord himself came as a man for us, that he would take the punishment of sin so that we could know his righteousness. He's much better than Jonah. Much better than Jonah. He didn't need God, the Father, to throw him out of heaven. He didn't need the angels to push him off the boat. He didn't need anybody to do anything. In fact, we're going to come to the table in a little bit. And in the context of the table, the Lord set in motion the plan in which he would be betrayed by one of his closest friends to go and die on the cross for an enemy people. And whereas Jonah will not even jump off the boat to save an enemy people, Jesus Christ willingly goes to the cross. And before he does, as he's about to be arrested, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's so tempted to walk away that he's sweating droplets of blood. And God sends an angel to minister to him. And even then, God does not have to push him toward the cross. But Jesus says, not my will be done, but yours. Because the mission of our King and Savior, the great king, prophet, and priest Jesus was to come and save a people who hated him and make a people who were not his, his own possession. 
He's much better than Jonah. Praise the Lord. When I was a kid, I remember, uh, I remember being in elementary school. I was in, I don't know, third grade, maybe fourth grade, something like that. And uh, one day our teacher sat us down. And she said, I want you all to get out a piece of paper. So we got a piece of paper. And she said, I want you to write on this piece of paper what would be an effective punishment for you. If you are disobedient in class, if you're disrespectful, if you cause a disturbance, if you hit a kid, whatever it is, what would be something that would be effective for you? And um, I, I got saved when I was young, and I'm, I'm not saying this in a haughty way, I say this in humility, but I was, it was so unfathomable for me. It was unfathomable that I would create some kind of disturbance for my teacher. It was unfathomable to me that I would hit a kid. I just, it was, this was so laughable. As a third grader, I'm sitting there, and I remember, I distinctly remember writing on this paper, if I disobey and hit a kid, you can chain me to my desk, and you can torture me with great instruments of destruction from the medieval times. And I just wrote that, you know, and I had in my mind that picture of those mace things, you know, those balls with the spikes. And I was like, you can just, you can just hit me with one of those. I'll take it. Because, it, and she wrote on there like, this is ridiculous or whatever, or something. Now, third grade, so I'm remembering it kind of funny. But I'm sure I didn't use those big words. But I, I just, I remember it was so unfathomable to me to think that I'm going to hit somebody in my class. That's, how, is that, how will that happen? And so, of course, you know, the, the big punishments were like timeout and all that kind of stuff. Here's my question for you. If God is the God who sent his son to save us, if God is the God who is over all things, who created the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, if God is God who has given us an identity in Christ, who has taken away our fear of judgment, who has made us his own, who has made us to be temples of his Holy Spirit, who has filled us to be his mouthpiece in the world, if God is the God who is true to all that he has said, what punishment does he need to give us to wake us up from the ship, to get us moving, to get us going in the right direction? Because we assume, like Jonah, that something's going to happen to us. Look at how Jonah has handed to him the platter of evangelism that we all hope for. The, the sea captain, who's a pagan, wakes Jonah up. So imagine you get a call 3 o'clock in the morning from a friend in crisis who says, I need you to wake up. And that person in crisis says to you, will you pray for me? Could you imagine? You'd be like, wow, God's doing something. And so Jonah comes up. He's not even praying for them. He's just walking out there. Let's cast lots to see on whose account this evil has come. And it falls supernaturally to Jonah. And then the people ask him, how many of us are waiting for the grocery store clerk or the friend we have in the neighborhood to ask us, hey, what's your testimony? What people are you from? Tell me about your church. Tell me about your God. Tell me about your occupation. Tell me why your life is different. That's what they ask him. Supernaturally, the lot falls on Jonah, and they say, tell us everything. And he tells them, and they believe. And what does he say? you got to throw me off the boat. You're going to have to throw me off the boat. What kind of punishment will it take? Now, I'm not saying that God's going to bring punishment on us. I'm saying... What does it take in the world for the church to have our foundation shaken to wake up 
and say, look what's happening. Because as we look outside our walls right now, the earth is trembling, trembling, terrified of coronavirus, terrified of the economy, terrified by actions of the past, terrified of things that we've seen, segregation, brokenness, broken marriage, broken homes, broken relationships, racism, broken governments, businesses failing, are we going back to school? Are we going back to work? What's happening? What about the global economy? I just talked to a brother yesterday whose business is in trouble because they lost a $600,000 deal because a company in India cannot produce fast enough to get the materials that they need to get here in the United States. And there's so many months behind on their production that they're just going to close down the whole account. And people are getting laid off and things are bad. And we look around our own city of St. Louis and we say, oh, Lord, help us. And our first instinct is to go down into the middle of the ship where it's safe instead of jump out of the boat and go where God's called us and do what he's told us to do. What will it take for us? Sometimes we say, Lord, if you just sent somebody to me and they just say, what's your occupation? What's your people? Where are you from? If somebody calls me at 3 a.m., then I'll know that you're working. And I'm telling you that God has shaken the economic, the government, the health, the, the societal foundations of our city. And it's time for us to wake up. And it's time for us to say something. What do we say? What do we say? We worship you, Lord. And how do we come to God? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The way we enter and we come in is not to pretend that if you just come to Jesus, you're going to know joy and everything will be great. If you have fear in your life, if you just come pray, all that fear will go away. Because that's what the church has been saying. It's not true. If you come before Jesus and you lay yourself face down, you say, Lord, forgive me a sinner. I have come against you. I rebelled against you. I need you. Lord, I trusted my own hands, my own heart, my own speech, my own strength more than I trusted you. Lord, I trusted that I could do it when you sent your perfect son. Lord, I dismissed him. And I thought I could do it. Forgive me, God. And then the flood of love and grace and joy and peace, the flood of knowing no fear because of judgment. That's when it comes. But we've watered down the gospel into just not having fear. Don't be afraid anymore, you church who know him. Don't be afraid to stand up and say what the message really is. What is it? There's no peace but Jesus. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. You need to know him. And then as we see things that are broken and wrong, we speak out against them all over the place. Because the foundation of his throne is justice and righteousness. And instead of cost, casting a blind eye to coronavirus or to stupid debates about masks or to, to junk racism and segregation, instead of pretending black lives matter or don't matter, I'm not really sure, I'm just going to stay neutral, God help us. Let's stand up and say something for Jesus. Let's not be like Jonah, who won't jump off the boat. And guess what? It's a little scary sometimes to jump off the boat. But we have a king who proved to us, proved to us that he didn't have to get pushed and he will catch us. We have no fear in him, do we? I was in Iraq in 2006 and uh, one night we had an emergency situation come up and uh, things were happening and I was called to investigate some stuff and 
Uh, so I pulled an all-nighter. Remember those? Gosh, they're the worst. So I pulled an all-nighter. I was up writing reports and doing stuff because I needed to give this thing to the command. And um, I remember going to sleep, and it was like 6.37, something like that. I looked at the clock, 6.37. I fell down on my little bed, my rack thing, and uh, fell asleep. And all of a sudden, I, I heard this pounding and shouting, and I was so confused. And I opened my eyes, and the clock was right in front of me, and it said 7.09. And I, I was so dazed, I didn't know what was going on. I had half my uniform on because I had just kind of climbed into bed. And I opened the door, and one of my squad leaders is standing there, and she goes, we're being shelled! We're being shelled! Run to the bunker! What are you doing? And I was so dazed, I couldn't, I couldn't differentiate in that little bit of sleep. Was I off? Was the alarm clock going off? Why is she shouting? And why is the earth shaking as bombs were falling on the base? And all of a sudden, like a rush of an instant, I was awake. And I realized, it's time to run. So I grabbed my rifle and I ran to the bunker. And praise God, uh, you know, we had buildings hit, but nobody was hurt. Uh, little, very small things. That's another story. What is it going to take for us to wake up? What is it going to take? And I'm telling you now, the Lord who owns heaven and earth... In, who we, in whom we have security and we have trust, we have no fear because we know that he's holding us, is shaking awake the whole planet, it seems. And it's almost like the church is the last to wake up. Let's let that momentary instant of, huh, I'm going, hit us now and say, Lord, use us. And what do we proclaim? We proclaim the gospel of Jesus everywhere, starting first with our neighbors and people we know, to tell them the truth of the Lord Jesus. How will this nation change? It will change by the church opening her mouth to be the mouthpiece that God has made us. That's not condemnation, and it shouldn't be scary to you. Instead, it should be a challenge of excitement. That God himself, who went before Jonah and spoke to the sailors even before Jonah opened his mouth, is the same God who's going before us now to protect us, to make fruit for his kingdom, and to bring souls back into the church. How wonderful. God is growing and he's changing people. Amen. Praise the Lord.